Welcome to episode six of the BGS Class of GCSE podcast. And uh, this section is going to be on myth and symbols of power. And set for this section 1.6, which you can see in your textbook starting page 99, um, there are four specific uh, types of portrayal of power in myth. You've got the two for Greece, two for Rome. Um, so it's the usual pattern of uh, two and two. Um, you've got the centromachy um, as depicted on the Parthenon, the Amazonomachy on the Bassi Frieze, and then the Prima Porta of Augustus and the Ara Parcus of Augustus. Um, we're going to talk through those um, one by one and we'll also uh, then talk about how you might link those uh, in together and what you might actually say about them um, in a test or exam. So the Centromachy, um, which is a prescribed source because it appears on the Parthenon, which did crop up in section three um, on temples, um, is uh, it's a uh, depiction of a mythical battle. Uh, it's a battle between um, the Lapiths. Now, Lapiths are just a tribe of men um, and the Centaurs, um, who you will remember from a previous um episode uh, are half men half horse um, and the battle um, happened at the wedding of King Perithous um, and uh, the people that had been uh, invited were human lapiths but also mythical centaurs and the key thing to notice about the stories of the centaur um, and the, the Mackie bit by the way just means the battle so it's just the the centaur battle the key thing to notice is that a lot of them will be about civilization and barbarism. So the centaurs are very often depicted as just, you know, it's not a case of, oh, well, they're half man, half beast, but actually they are deeply kind of non-human in a sense. And that non-human basically means they just don't know how to control themselves in a way that human beings do. So the story of the centauromachy really represents the way that human beings have developed the capacity to kind of look after themselves and not to go and do silly things. So, for example, one of the parts of that story of the centaurs um, is that they drink too much. And when they drink too much, they end up doing all sorts of terrible things that they would otherwise not have done. Um, the way that they're depicted on the Parthenon, um, they are uh, in metope form. Now, you remember from the uh, Temple of Zeus Olympia with the metopes of Heracles um, that... Uh, these are the um, sections um, that are up on the top, uh, towards the top of uh, a temple. In this case, on the Parthenon, um, the stories work quite well because um, they uh, depict human beings, lapiths, fighting centaurs. Um, and again, um, as we've talked through before, there are various different aspects that you want to talk about when it comes to those metopes. You want to think about the realism of the scene. Now, very often it's difficult when talking about centaurs to talk about realism, of course, because, you know, you're not depicting a real creature. And yet what they've done with a lot of the, uh, the, the metopes of the Parthenon. So look at um, page 102. Um, as an example, the very top left there on page 102, you've got um, some, some bits missing of that original metope. Um, but you have got a sense of if there was such a thing as a, as a centaur, then that's kind of what they would look like. Um, and uh, the realism of that um, is if you could imagine those two uh, creatures fighting, that's basically what they would look like. OK, you've got realism, but very... Um, 
good use of uh, observation of horses and observation of men and therefore the idea of the leg muscles and um, we've mentioned before this idea of musculature talking about how muscles kind of are um, particularly well uh, depicted um, that that will be something you could then mention talking about um, uh, a meta about scene and of course you're not leaving the bank big blank spaces um, and you're telling a story about what's going on um, now uh, the the battle was very clearly um, a very uh, keenly fought uh, uh, battle between centaurs and lapiths um, and sometimes you'll see a, a, a lapith winning sometimes you'll see a centaur winning um, but you will always see uh, this idea of telling a story about what's actually going on um, so that's the basics um, of the centauromachy um, on the parthenon um, now moving on to the um, the amazonomachy so Centromachy was Maki battle with the centaurs. The Amazon Omachy, Maki battle with the Amazons. Nothing to do with South America. The Amazons are a mythical race of warlike women from Asia Minor. Um, they had no men in their society. Um, they only joined up with men when they needed to repopulate. They would steal men from the neighboring tribe. Um, sleep with them and then get rid of them if they gave birth to a girl brilliant she was raised as a fellow warrior if they gave birth to a boy they were killed um the name amazon possibly comes from the fact that they were breastless uh, at mazdon or is because they chopped off one of their breasts uh, to help with their archery so that the uh, the strap of the bow wouldn't twang ouch um now there were two big battles between the Greeks and the Amazons, but the one you care about is the Heraclean Amazonomachy, which is the one you learnt about with Heracles. As his ninth labour, he had to go and steal the belt of Hippolyta, um, and that caused a war between the Greeks and the Amazons, and that's the one shown here. So let's get, look at where was this frieze. There was a temple to Apollo in Bassi. And unlike typical friezes, this one is inside the temple. In fact, you have to go right inside the naos and then up on the ceiling uh, around you. So imagine walking into a room and it was up on the walls uh, was this story. And it was not a metope, metope. It was not squares with individual images. It was a continuous frieze. A continuous freeze, so the story continues as a as a, as a as a continuous slide, and it's a different physical shape into which to put your story, and that's really important when comparing a continuous freeze to a meetup. Um, so, um, you will be asked in the exam to talk about the continuous freeze of the Amazonomachy in terms of your three uh, aspects realism, recognisability, and use of space. You get very used to that now, and that's really good. RRS. So if you look at an image from the Amazonomachy, first question is, is it recognisable? Has the sculptor made it recognisable? Well, if you look on page 105 of your textbooks, you can see a man fighting against a woman. And that's your first, it's a battle. So yes, it's recognisable, it's a battle. Secondly, uh, the man has got um, a lion's skin draped over his arm and, uh, and dangling between his legs. That allows us to recognise Hercules. So it's recognisably 
Heracles is fighting there. The person he's fighting against has got visible breasts and she's got flowing drapery, uh, which tells us it's a woman. Excellent. So it's clearly recognisable. Um, the next question is, is it realistic? Is it realistic? And just like before, we talked about the three words to use in terms of realism are musculature, drapery and proportion. So if we look at the musculature, again, on page 105, you've got the muscles of Hercules. His calf is tensed. His stomach uh, shows him twisting away. His right bicep is tensed as he raises that weapon against the Amazon. It is realistic musculature. Um, then we look at the drapery. A good page for drapery is page 106, image C. You can see the drapery folds realistically. You can see uh, it flowing in the background. Um, you can see it flowing in the background as though it creates dynamism. It's moving as the character moves forwards. So section C shows uh, the Basai freeze. In fact, you can compare that to image A, which is a metope of the centromachy. And again, there's really realistic drapery there. But back to Basai. Um, the next question is proportion. Is it in proportion? Now, typically the answer to that is yes. However, when we bring horses into the question, we look at the horse on the bottom of page 105 and to fit the woman's head in, she's bent right down and the horse is about the same size as the people and the woman and the woman on top. So here, the artist, the sculpture falls down. We can critique them for their poor proportionism. The, uh, the woman and the horse are the same size, which is not very realistic. Finally, we have use of space. And we can say that as a continuous freeze, there's lots of movement, there's lots going on. Every inch of the freeze is filled with some kind of action. By having the woman bending down to fit into the freeze, it's a bit unrealistic, but it means there's more going on. Um, and we can see other images. We've got animals, horses that have fallen down, characters that have fallen down. So at the bottom of the scene isn't just legs, there are people on the bottom as well. So fallen warriors use, are used to fill the space effectively. Okay, so <clears throat> that one is, uh, we've looked at the two <clears throat> Greek um, uh, thematic studies, the, the two Greek uh, symbols of power there. Um, when you're comparing them, you need to think if you're asked a question about two uh, metopes, or a, a, a rather a section and a metope, um, you, you need to think about what is the uh, purpose of it being depicted. So think really carefully about why are the Greeks showing somebody fighting a centaur. It's not because they hate centaurs, it's because the centaurs represent something. Okay, and from the, from the point of view of the Athenians putting the centaurs on the Parthenon, it's all to do with representing barbarians as being bad and the Athenians, the Greeks, as being good. And in particular, they're thinking with the Parthenon of the Persians, who are their uh, old enemy who um, have come into Greece and are very much favourites to win the war against Greece. It's not actually how it pans out in the end in the uh, early 5th century, but um, it very, very nearly comes to an end of uh, the whole idea of Greece. So you can depict the centaurs as being all about barbarism um, and the Amazons as being, well, it's a very similar thing. Um, it's possible to focus on the, the, the female aspect of it. That's just something that makes them a little bit different, I think, as a, as, as a, um, as a people. 
So um, the idea of trying to represent uh, this struggle between different parts of humanity. Good. So let's move on to uh, the Roman symbols of power. Um, and I'll start with uh, the Prima Porta. Now, it's really important you get these uh, the right way around. The Prima Porta is the statue of Augustus. And you can see it on page 110. Um, if you haven't got the textbook, very easy to find it on Google. Just search Augustus Prima Porta and that's P-R-I-M-A-P-O-R-T-A. Um, and it's a statue of Augustus, who was uh, the Roman emperor um, at the turn of the first century BC to the first century AD. And um, this statue was actually made um, for his wife as a sort of celebration of how amazing her husband is. OK, so you're thinking of any um, Valentine's Day presents, uh, maybe um, that, that would be something to uh, give consideration to. Um, but... The things that this statue does is it doesn't just represent him as an individual. It represents what the Romans were trying to do in terms of giving symbols of power, which is to show this idea of one person being um, massively important, being central to uh, a city state. And in this case, not just a city state, but actually an empire. Um, now, the Romans were very interested in this idea of recreating the golden age and bringing back the time when everything was perfect and everything worked really well. Um, and that worked not just for morality, but also for architecture. Um, and also this idea of Roman peace. So, you know, the Romans are in charge of everything. You don't have to battle them. Just just be nice and sort of sit and wait for the Romans to take over your country. And then, provided you pay your taxes, the Romans will actually look after you. And, you know, the warring tribe from next door or won't dare to um, sort of invade because, frankly, they know the Romans are more powerful than them. So um, this this was one key aspect, this idea of peace, and also the idea of the peace of the gods, um, the idea that, that um, provided that Augustus was um, kind of uh, treated properly by the people, well, he's a god if, if eventually. He's, he's sort of God's representative on earth, if you like, and therefore um, it's not... Um, it's not going to go badly for you if you've got Augustus in charge. So going back to this statue then, um, there are several things, and you can see a list of them on page 109 that really set this out as being um, something that makes the statue important. Um, but all of them, the key thing is he's in charge, he's a general, he's military, he's got a breastplate, he's connected with the gods, you've got Apollo, you've got Artemis. Um, you've got, um, uh, I, I say Artemis, of course, um, uh, really, because it's a, a Roman statue, I should have said Diana. Um, and then you've got Venus and Cupid, okay, and the dolphin, and also Cupid himself sitting on that little dolphin by his um, right, uh, right leg, represent this idea of um, Venus, the, the goddess who in Greek was Aphrodite. Um, so you've got this link with um, the military, you've got this link with these, this uh, powerful figure who's connected to the gods. You've also got this idea of him representing uh, the history of Rome, because um, as you will remember, I'm sure, um, the, uh, the very beginnings um, of the Roman idea were um, Aeneas coming from Troy, and Aeneas' mother was Aphrodite or 
Venus in Roman uh, times. And um, so therefore the fact that Cupid is there and the fact that uh, there's this link with Venus shows that Augustus is not just some bloke who's come and taken over the Roman state. He's actually destined to be there because of his links to the past in Rome. So it's a really important statue um, and it represents something about, you know, putting a, you know, an image um, of this really important uh, figure up there for people to well, for people to worship effectively, but certainly people to recognise how um, important he was. So that's that's the Prima Porta PP. Um, you've got the uh, Araparchus, the AP um, now, we're going to um, go through, um, which plays a similar role to the, uh, the Prima Porta, but has some key differences. So... The Ara Parcus is just a Latin phrase that means altar of peace. Um, and it's a very visual piece, so you really do need to be looking at your textbook. Pages 111, 112, 113, 114 have all the images we need to discuss it. <clears throat> we looked at altars earlier in temples, and they are big stone boxes on which you kill animals. Nice and simple but you want to make that altar look very pretty to show respect to, to the god or gods. Now, where the Arapakas is different is that it starts off with its very pretty ornate altar. It then puts those on top of some steps to elevate it and make it important. And then it puts a wall around it, like a fence made of marble. There's no roof on it, it's open at the top, but it's got a wall around it. That makes it uh, more elitist, more prestigious, and it creates an opportunity for the sculptor to carve interesting things on those walls, friezes, and we call, we're going to call those walls facades, faces of the walls, and it, each we're going to refer to them as north, east, south, and west, depending on which way they're facing, and the carvings on them are what we're going to discuss in detail. The actual altar itself in the middle, we're not going to spend much time discussing at all. Um, so why was this even built? So it was... It was begun in 13 BC and finished in 9 BC. So it took four years to build. Uh, Augustus, as the first emperor of Rome, was off fighting in Hispania and Gaul, so Western Europe. And he, on his return, the Senate decided to uh, honour Augustus by having a altar of peace built for him. Uh, and they decreed that uh, the magistrates, which are politicians of the city, priests and the Vestal Virgins every year should offer sacrifices on this altar to, to peace, but also at the same time, effectively, to Augustus. So here Augustus is tying himself to peace or the end of war so that people would see him favourably. Um, and it involves, you know, having an altar dedicated to a, a mortal is an element of a way of deifying or raising the status of that individual. Um, it, was it was built out of marble, so a nice white stone, very expensive, and the cost, the value, the, the, the challenge in obtaining marble shows its, its worth, its power. Uh, but also marble refra refracts light, Light can go into marble a little bit, so it's a very nice way of creating shadow contrast and human-like texture. It's flesh-like texture. Um, it was placed in the Campus Martius, the fields of Mars, which we talked about uh, before. Um, and so that's very relevant to the idea of war. That's where the soldiers would, would gather together before uh, training. 
and having a, an altar here of peace was quite pertinent. Uh, the altar itself, the actual block on which the sacrifice took place, um, had images that showed the sacrifice that would take place on it. Um, and there are some there are some slaves shown on there leading the sacrifice, and you can tell they're slaves because they're only half dressed. Now let's look at the enclosure wall, this marble fence around it, and let's look at the uh, the different um, uh, facades. The Romans were trying to uh, project an image of civil religion. So this is the religion that this state follows. And the idea is that they're trying to show Augustus as powerful, as peaceful, Rome as powerful and peaceful, and they were shown to, trying to show piety, respect for the gods, their religion. So if you turn to page 112, you can see the West Frieze, a couple of panels from the West Frieze all carved in relief. There's not much left of these and there's debate as to what they actually represented. But um, possibly the left-hand side shows an image of the Lupercalia, uh, the moment that the shepherd discovered Romulus and Remus being suckled by the she-wolf. Uh, not much of that left. On the right, we've got a couple of figures, one bearded, two younger boys, and uh, possibly a pig. Um, that has two interpretations. One, is that it is Aeneas offering sacrifice in front of his son Ascanius. The other interpretation is that the man is Numa, who was the second king of Rome. He uh, was important in terms of the religious introductions he made to Rome. But in the background, we can see on the top left of that image, a little temple. And if that is Numa, then that makes that the temple of Janus. And that's really important because there was a tradition in Rome that um, when Rome was at peace, they would close the doors of the temple of Janus. And then when Rome was at war, they would open the doors. Um, and Augustus says that he closed the doors of the temple and they stayed that way. So it's a, having that temple is a reminder of the peace that Augustus has brought. Very relevant for the Ara Parkis, Altar of Peace. If we look at the East Frieze, we can see some really detailed, wonderfully carved imagery. We've got a female figure. We've got two babes. We've got, um, uh, she's got females either side of her. Really detailed and realistic drapery. And we've got animals underneath her. And then on the right-hand side, very, very damaged uh, figure on the right, some kind of warlike female figure. Lots of debate as to what these represent, um, but typically it's seen that, that the lady on the left represents peace, and the one on the right is either Minerva or it's actually Roma, Roma, the female personification of Rome. Um, moving now to the North Frieze. Um, if you look on page 113, you can see a little panel of the North Frieze. <clears throat> Clearly a line of men wearing their detailed uh, togas. And they are senators and priests in procession. Uh, a religious procession which you could absolutely compare to that on the Parthenon, showing the Panathenaic procession. And the South Frieze is similar in it's a line of people. But these are the family of the emperor, the imperial family. And Augustus himself is there and he's followed by priests. You can tell that they are priests because they're the ones with caps on their heads. Um, the other thing to mention about the Arapakis is 
around each of the panels, there is architectural detail. So you, you could call it a column. It's certainly made to look like a column. And it has lots of uh, vegetative imagery, uh, patterns that look like plants. And plant-like vegetative imagery was really important post-war. Because in war, we ravaged the countryside and we ran out of, of crops because the soldiers needed them all. And the idea of peace was an end to war, an end to that kind of um, taking away of crops and the idea that we can regrow and we can have food again. Great. So that's the four um, symbols of power. When you're talking about them in an exam, you can get us to compare any two of them, two Roman ones, two Greek ones, or a Roman and a Greek one. But you want to think about which was the better expression of power or which one expressed something about the importance of power. And to do that, you need to think about how, well, what were they trying to do with it? Okay, so why did they stick that thing on the on the temple at Bassi or on the Parthenon? You know, was it just that they liked the picture or was it trying to say something about the super, uh, the... Um, the fact that the Athenians were better than these barbarians. Similarly, what was the point of the Arapakis? You know, was it just that, you know, somewhere to go? Actually, no, it was basically propaganda. Okay, so propaganda in all four of them, but propaganda towards a particular figure for the Romans, propaganda towards an idea or a couple of ideas for the Greeks. And that's Myth and Symbols of Power.